All right. All that received the offering, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17. Now, for some of you, you were like, wait, we preached through Acts 17 last week. What is going on? Uh, That's true. We did. We were in Acts 17 last week. Um, And we're going to go back. Uh, This is going to be our last Sunday in the book of Acts this summer. Now, we did a third of the book of Acts last summer. We did a third this summer. And we're going to do a third next summer. So we're working our way through Acts. Lord willing, we'll finish it next summer. We'll see what God does. Lord willing, that's the plan. We're going to go back into it. We're going to do the last third next summer. We were supposed to wrap it up last Sunday. But as I was working on the sermon for this morning, um, something in 1 Corinthians, which is where Paul goes after Acts 17, caught my attention and I realized something, I saw something that, that I had never seen before, something that, I, that had always kind of given me pause and I'd always kind of wrestled through and trying to figure out, um, and then, then, it, then it hit me. And I was like, man, that, we, need, we, need to, we need to sit in that. We need, we need to preach in that. And so Acts 18, we preached Acts 18 last fall. For those of you who were around Flourishing Grace last fall, we preached through most of Acts 18 last fall. Fall. That's when we launched this idea of praying for one. There's there's a part in Acts 18 where Paul is kind of stressed out. He's nervous. Things aren't going well in Corinth. And God appears to Paul in a vision. He says, I have many people in the city who are my people. Paul doesn't know it yet. They don't know it yet. But there are people in that city who God has predestined. He's already called them out of spiritual darkness. And he's going to bring them into spiritual light. And he's going to do it through Paul. He's going to use Paul to do it. But he hasn't revealed that yet. And so we launched this idea of praying for one, that every single day we'd pray, God, would you give me one person in my life to share the love of Jesus with? Because we believe that that's true right here in our neighborhoods, in our communities, just as much as it was for Paul and Corinth. There are people on your block, people in your office, that God has already called out of spiritual darkness and is going to bring in a spiritual light, and he's going to use you to do it. God, would you give me that person? Maybe it's the barista at Starbucks. Maybe it's the waiter at the restaurant. Maybe it's this person in my, in my, in my office that I've, that I've known for years. Maybe it's a neighbor mowing their yard. Would you, would, you, would you just awaken their soul and would you awaken my soul and would you give me the words and the encouragement to, to speak the gospel in, in their lives? So we, we kind of already covered Acts 18, but there's this kind of a transition between the end of 17 and the beginning of 18 that I want to go back and kind of say, hey, Hey, we can't miss this. We can't miss this. Now, if you remember last week, Paul was where? Where's Paul? Where was he last week? Not Philippi. That was two weeks ago. Athens. Athens. It's all blurring together, I know. Last week, he's in Athens, right? He's in Athens. He's in this hub of just Greek intellect and wisdom. He's in this place where there's all of these different foreign gods, all these false idols, right? Athens was the home of the pantheon. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods. Everywhere you look, there's a god for everything. And Paul, when he goes into the city, he is disgusted by this. It says that his spirit is provoked. He's angry about this. He's like, this is not okay. Like, this is too much for my soul to handle. And he's he's frustrated by it. He's angry by it. And kind of the big thing that I said last week was that, listen, in, in this loving pursuit, this gentle, kind, gracious pursuit of the people of Athens, in the midst of, of, a, of a righteous anger, God produces 
a fruitful invitation. And we unpacked this last week, right? We unpacked all of this last week. If you, if you weren't here, you can go back and you can listen to it, right? Paul, even though he's frustrated, even though he's angry with what he sees in Athens, he's loving and he's kind and he's gracious and he doesn't give up and he pursues and he pursues and he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And, he pursues. and he's given the opportunity to, to preach, to preach at the Areopagus, this temple to the foreign god, the god of war, and he goes and he preaches this sermon. And we didn't have time to get into it last week, but I want to read it for us again. And I want you to see something this week that I think is really important for us. Paul begins Acts 17, verse 22. Here's what it says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, in everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as, as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of an, of an imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is Paul's sermon in the Areopagus. It's widely regarded as one of the most eloquent, uh, as the most eloquent, most wise, kind of most amazing, most astounding sermons that Paul ever gave. Right? He, it's just this incredible work that he put together. Let me ask you this. Have you ever, has there ever been a moment in your life where you've worked so hard at something, you've tried so unbelievably hard to make this thing perfect, that you worked too hard? Like it ended up flopping because you put so much energy and effort into it. Maybe it was a test in college, right? You can overstudy for a test. I don't know if you know that or not. Like you can study so much and there's so much stress and anxiety. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. When the reality is you do know, you convince yourself that you don't know. You put too much energy, too much effort, too much work, and you're tired and you're stressed out and you're exhausted. And the test comes, you're like, oh, but you know all the information that's in you, but you can't produce it. Has anybody ever experienced that? Maybe it was like a presentation at work. This, this thing you had to do, and it had, you're just like, it has to be perfect, it has to be perfect, it has to be perfect. You put, put so much time and energy and effort into it, it just flops because it's just, you just work too hard on it. You put too much into it. 
The other day, uh, Winston, we have a little five-year-old Winston, uh, we bought him this, this puzzle, and it's blank. It's just like all blank, and so you can color on it. You can make it your own puzzle. It's like do your do-it-yourself puzzle. And so he begins to color on this puzzle with markers, and he realizes that he can't erase markers. He's frustrated. He gets so, it has to be perfect. And so he gets, he gets so worked up. He's crying. He's just bawling over this. And we're trying to like, we got like baby wipes out. We're trying to like erase the marker. And it's just like smearing. And he's just freaking out and losing his mind because it's got to be perfect. He throws the whole thing away. We had to go buy him another one. And even this morning, he's working on the new one. And he's just stressing because it's not perfect. Okay. My wife would say that the first two years of our marriage was this, all right? Um, seriously. Like, we had this idea of what a perfect marriage was going to be like, and she had this idea, this is what the perfect marriage looked like, and I had an idea of what perfect marriage looked like, and they weren't the same. And so for the first two years, we're trying to make it perfect, and we're, like, at war with each other. Like, one of the best things we learned was, that, was like, we're idiots that were trying to make this thing perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. And what our ideas of perfect are not even perfect, We've all kind of experienced this in some way, shape, or form, this idea that, man, we work so hard at something, we craft it, and we work so unbelievably hard, and it just flops. I want to make the case this morning that this is what happens in Athens. I want to make the case this morning that this is what Paul does. That he works so hard at crafting this just beautiful, eloquent, wise speech that he gives before the Areopagus, these, these men who were just brilliant, right? Athens is the home of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and Paul's like, hey, it's got to be good. And so he works up the perfect sermon illustration. He's like, look, I found this like inscription to the unknown God. Like, how good is this? I can bridge the gap between their culture and the God of all things. Like, listen, he claims to know the unknown God. He's like, I know that one, and he's the God of all things. He goes back and he unpacks how God is sovereign over all things. He gives this just beautiful, eloquent picture of the sovereignty of God over all mankind. It's perfect. He quotes Greek poets. He's like, dude, they're, gonna, they're going, like he's got, got them on the hook and he's reeling them in. He's like, dude, they're going to love this. In the church today, in our culture right now, right now, there, there's kind of this fascination with Acts 17. Like the church right now in our day, as, as we kind of grapple with culture, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do, we, how do we reach the culture of our day? So many things have been done in the name of Acts 17. And listen, some of them are great things. Like it's important for us to study the culture of our day and know how to engage the culture of our day. But so many unbelievably ridiculous things have come because the church is fascinated and kind of enamored with Acts 17. We're like, listen, we need to bridge the culture of our day. We need to become, we need to quote the poets of our day. And so who do we quote? Who are the poets of our day? Say it. Jay-Z. That's right. That's right. Jay-Z is like the poet of our day. So, so we have bands on Sunday that will play Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake. And they, they'll come up here on a Sunday morning and play the music of our day to bridge the gap between us and culture. So there's churches right now, pyrotechnics. That's what we need, right? People who love fireworks, we'll give them fireworks. There are churches um, that are constantly thinking through how do we do the things that culture is doing? How do we look hip? How do we look cool? How do we get people to like us? How do we paint this picture of being a people who are just like culture? 
Right? There are churches that have spent millions and millions of dollars on ad campaigns to make themselves look cool and normal. There are churches that pump in smells because that's what malls do. You know this, right? M- malls pump in the smell because, because people have researched this and they know there are certain smells that make you want to buy stuff. Right? And those same companies have convinced churches that if you pump in the right smell, people are going to love Jesus more. Now, if that was true, I'd be all about it. Let's pump it in all day long. Let's keep pumping it in. But it's just not true. Like they pump in smells to make people feel comfortable and welcomed. And we're spending money on this because we want to do what culture is doing. And I'd make the case that it's fallen flat. It works for a season. It works for a moment. People come, but we attract people who do not see their need for the cross of Christ. And I want to make the case this morning that Paul did the exact same thing in Corinth. He put this thing together and he said, this is brilliant. This is awesome. This is going to just, this is going to just kill. And it fell flat. Look at the end. Look at the next piece of this passage. Look at verse... 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, all right, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the, the Areopagites, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. He, here's Here's what happens, right? So, so at the end of this just brilliant, and it is brilliant. Listen, it's impressive. Like the way he ties this all in with the culture of the day, the eloquence, the, will, the wisdom, it's impressive. But at the end, most of the room laughs at him. And the other half's like, ah, uh, okay, I've heard stranger things. We'll, we'll, we'll hear you again on this. Listen, if at the end of my sermon on a Sunday, half the room laughs and the other half's like, ah, I guess we could come back in here and give you one more shot to really explain this. That's not a good thing. Like, that's not a good week. Like something, something went wrong. Something, something, I said something really dumb. Okay? It, it fell flat. Now, yes, there is some fruit from this. There is some level to this where some people said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll buy into this, right? It's like the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 20, right? Some of the seed is kind of thrown on, on the road. It lands on the road and, and the hard road and the ground and the birds come and they eat it and they devour it. And it's, like, it's just worthless, okay? <laughs> That's cute. Let's move on. Now, some of it falls amongst the, the rocks, Right? And it, and it springs up, but when the sun comes, there's no real good soil. So it just, it's gone. Okay, we'll hear you again on this. We'll hear you again. But nothing ever really comes of it. So it's choked out by the culture of the day. It's choked out by the weeds and the thorns. And some of it, a little bit of it, works out. But for the most part, this most thing, this thing we, that we kind of regard as Paul's most brilliant sermon, falls flat. Think about it, in all the cities in Acts where Paul goes, where Paul preaches, when he preaches in the synagogue, when he preaches in the streets, when when Paul proclaims the gospel, one of two things happens again and again and again as we've been studying through the book of Acts, right? Either A, there's this mighty movement of the power of the Spirit of Christ, and just the whole city comes back, right? If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about this idea where the whole city is like, please, please come back next week and tell us more. Please, we want to hear more. Or, or... 
Paul's like beaten, arrested, thrown in prison, and God moves mightily and powerfully to win people to himself through the persecution of Paul, and churches are planted. Churches are planted from city to city to city to city. Now, as far as we know, all evidence, all history suggests no church was ever planted by Paul in Athens. No one. There's no, there's no one there. There's no one that has a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. Religious city, city of worship, all kinds of things, but no real transformation. Paul puts in all this energy. He wants to look a certain way. He wants it to be brilliant. He needs to compete with the scholars and the wisdom of the day. And it falls flat. Now, I think there's even more evidence to suggest that this is true. I think that even Paul knows it's true. You see, from Athens, Paul goes to Corinth, 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Right? Paul, Paul's not driven out of the city. He's not arrested or beaten. Like, nothing bad happens there. There's no outpouring of the Spirit of God. Paul just like, okay, moving on to the next one. Paul leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth. It's about 50 miles to the west of Athens. He, he, he travels to Corinth. And on the way, I think Paul is processing this. And along the way, he realizes, man, that was a bust. It just, just didn't work. It didn't, didn't work out at all. Look with me, if you will, if you'd flip in your Bibles to um, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're in the blue Bible, it's on page 1,600 and... Am I in ballpark? Anybody got it? 1,066? 1,054. We'll get it. We'll get it. Listen, I'm doing it by memory, man. Come on, give me a break. 1,054, Blue Bible. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes this to this church that he plants in Corinth. Just, just days after he leaves Athens, okay? Here's what he says. And when I came to you, brothers... When I showed up in Corinth, when I left Athens, and when I arrived in Corinth, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech, in my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's, let's just look at that for a second. When I showed up, when I rolled into Corinth, I did not come, I did not come proclaiming to you, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In Athens, Paul's sermon at the Areopagus is the most lofty speech and lofty wisdom that we see in the apostle anywhere, anywhere in the Bible. 
It is just this brilliant kind of high level. Paul is a well-educated man, educated in Tarsus, studied under the best um, teachers in Jerusalem. Like he is well-educated and he pours it all out in Athens. He quotes their own poets, the Greek poets. It's just wisdom and lofty speech. Not when he rolls into Corinth though. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? Paul says, listen, in Athens, he says, listen, I know the unknown God. I know something you don't know. I know something new. I, I know something brilliant. Let me show you who the unknown God is. Not in Corinth. He doesn't know anything except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Guess what's not? Guess what's not in his speech in Athens? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Never mentions Jesus by name. Never mentions the cross. Something happens on the road from Athens to Corinth. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Not in Athens. He was bold. He walks into the Areopagus, this temple of, of false gods. But the, the, the Areopagus was not just a temple to the god of war. The Areopagus was also a community of men, philosophers of the day, who would, who would bicker and debate over all kinds of crazy stuff and kind of think about, think, just think deeply about the culture and how things should be within culture. Paul walks boldly into this council and proclaims with boldness all these things about God with wisdom and lofty speech. Not in Corinth. Comes in fear and trembling. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. Right? Listen, listen, what I told you when I came into Corinth didn't even make any sense. That's what he says. There's no plausible wisdom here. It doesn't add up. When you talk about the God of all things, the ruler of all things, the one who created and established the heavens and the earth and is sovereign over all of them, that same God put on flesh, dwelt among us, and was stripped naked, beaten in the streets, and killed on a Roman cross. Doesn't make any sense, and I knew it didn't make any sense, but I, was, I just said it anyways. I held that back in Athens. Held it back, but not in Corinth. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What I realized in Athens is that there's nothing in the wisdom of men. There's nothing there, right? It, it, you, go, you go to, um, to Solomon, Right, when Solomon writes on the wisdom of men, the, the, at that point in time, the wisest man who had ever lived, King Solomon, when he writes in Ecclesiastes, he says, I've searched it all, I've studied it all, I've gone after it all, vanity of vanities, meaninglessness of meaninglessness, there's nothing in the wisdom of men. Paul says, I don't want your faith or your hope to be found in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God alone. Somewhere on the journey to Corinth, Paul comes to grips with the reality that the eloquence of men has no effect on the human soul. Only the spirit of Jesus through the power of the cross has the ability to transform lives. Friends, if you are going to be effective in ministry in Utah, it's not going to be because you are cool. Because you've got it all put together. 
Because on Instagram, you can post sweet pictures that look awesome, telling a fake narrative of your life. It's not because you're going to wow people with your smarts and your theology. It's going to be because you love Jesus more than you love anything in the world. It's the only way this works. And Paul realizes this by a mistake he made in Athens. He realizes it by the time he gets to Corinth. He says, no, I'm never doing that again. Never doing that again. I'm going to cling to Jesus no matter what. We do not impress people with our stuff, with our smarts, but we work to know Jesus and we work to allow Jesus to move in their lives, right? We all know the people, listen, we all know the people who just like, who just know their Bible in and out and they know how to create and craft the argument that's just going to wow everybody. Now listen to me. If you've been around Flourishing Grace at all, you know we love the Bible more than we love most things on earth. We hold a high view of Scripture here at Flourishing Grace. Our goal last year was to increase the amount, like one of our number one goals last year was to increase the amount of each one of you read the Bible every single day. Like one of our number one goals is every person every single day, that we'd be in the Word every single day. But listen, listen. Your knowledge of the Bible is never going to win anybody to Jesus. Jesus is going to win people to Jesus. And the people who come into Utah and say, I, got, I know I got all the answers. I know every scripture. I know it all. I, I know the perfect arguments. They never last. People who are faithful to Jesus do. And so we must be faithful to Jesus and faithful to share him with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. Now some of you say, man, that's scary. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to do. Listen, look at the verse 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. Friends, you are in good company. The guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament is in the same shoes of you. The guy who planted all of these churches feels the same way. Fear and trembling. A healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of of our stupidity is a good place to be. You see, I don't think Paul's fear is a fear of man. I don't think it's a fear of like, oh my gosh, what are the people in Corinth going to think of me, right? That's not what I think it is. I think it's a fear of God. I think and he sees what he did in Athens and he's like, I'm sorry for being so dumb. I'm sorry for being so naive to think that in some way, shape, or form, my lofty words of wisdom could, could influence the souls of men. I'm sorry. Please don't let me do that again. Please don't let me fall into that trap again. Please don't let me be stupid. There's like this balance between the fear of God and the fear of just our own stupidity. It's like, I, if I'm left to myself, I will jack this up. I need you to move in me and through me. I need the Spirit of Christ. Or this is hopeless. This is a great place to be. It is the place to be. Bonhoeffer said it this way. Bonhoeffer said, I believe that God will give us all the strength we need to help us to resist in all time of distress. But he never gives it in advance. Least we should rely on ourselves and not on him alone. If you are afraid when it comes to your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers that maybe you don't have the right things to say, if you're afraid that maybe your story of what Jesus has done in your life isn't enough, perfect. Trust in God. Allow him to move. Allow him to work. Allow him to speak through you. Perfect. God has not called you to proclaim the gospel because you are awesome and you have it all together. 
He hasn't. That's not why he called you out of spiritual darkness and brought you into spiritual light. He did it because he's awesome and he wants the world to know. Look back with me. Just flip back real quick to the previous passage in, the, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a few verses earlier. The end of chapter 1. Paul says this about the peop- to the people in Corinth. People like you and me. The same idea. The same, the same line of thinking. He says this. Verse 26 of chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. What is your calling, What is your calling, church? Somebody said it. Make disciples. That's our calling. To give our lives, to be like Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ, to be an apprentice of Jesus, and to make more disciples. Consider that. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. A little insulting, but okay. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. That's true. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. We think about the mountain that lies ahead of us. Thousands, tens of thousands of people that do not know the fullness of the gospel of Jesus. It is impossible. It's overwhelming, it's daunting, it is, it's, it's stifling. It causes one to just freeze and say, there's no hope, there's no hope. I'm not smart enough, I'm not powerful enough, I'm not of noble birth. My name is not so-and-so, I can't do that. Paul says, exactly, exactly. God has called you out of spiritual darkness and into spiritual light. And he's going to use you just as you are in order to illuminate himself, not you. He wants to use your brokenness to illuminate his greatness. How? Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of anything you did, not because of anything you... Not, not because of anything oppressive about you, not because you are smart enough or wise enough or strong enough, because of the power of God on the cross, you are in Christ who became to us the wisdom of God. There's not one person in this room who came to faith in Jesus because of the wisdom of man. Like no one in this room came to Jesus because you were wowed by someone's smarts. No one came to faith in Jesus in this room because somebody who had it all together said, hey, you need to know Jesus. No. You came to Jesus because God worked in your life to produce a transformation in your soul. God did that work in you. No one did that work in you. And so why do we think, why do we think that in some way, form, we're going to be the ones that do it in somebody else? I got to be smart enough. I got to be sharp enough. I got to know all the right things. I got to be powerful. I got to be bold. I got to do everything right. What's wrong with us? 
That's not how it worked for you. I don't know all of your stories, but listen, if you're in Jesus, I know that's not how it worked for you because that's not how it works. We are desperate for the Spirit of God to work in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, not desperate for us to step up and show them how awesome we are. You don't need to be a genius to grasp the gospel. You don't need to know everything. But there's so much there to learn. There's so much there. We can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And God wants to lead you into a deeper understanding of him. You don't have to know everything in order to engage. But as you engage, he's going to show you so much far more than you can ever begin to imagine. Spurgeon said it this way, and, and I love this. He said, while the gospel can be understood by the poorest and most illiterate, while there are shallows in it where a lamb may wade, there are depths where Leviathan may swim. Leviathan being these kind of ancient mystic sea creatures in the book of Job, creepy, crazy stuff. Um, Spurgeon says, listen, you do not, do not think that you have to have it all together. Do not think that you have to have all the knowledge. Do not think that you need to have it all memorized and figured out in order to come to Jesus. That's not what he's looking for. That's not what he's looking for. But as you come, he's going to teach you to swim. He's going to bring you in deeper. As we learn to spiritually swim, we, by committing ourselves to the disciplines of the Christian life, giving ourselves to prayer and the reading of the word and practicing the presence of fasting and solitude and confession and community, the deeper and deeper we go, we wade deeper into the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of the gospel. For those who are constantly seeking to go deeper, there is no end or limit to the joy that can be found in the wisdom of God. You see, God has chosen those whom the world sees as shallow in order to reveal his wisdom. He has chosen those whom the world sees as broken in order to see his perfection. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is how, this is this plan from the beginning. The wisdom of God is to use those who are broken to reveal his perfection and to reveal his ability to save the world. Origen said it this way. He said, the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God are not the same thing. God's wisdom is the true one without any additives to corrupt it. The world's wisdom is foolish even, even though the simplicity of God's wisdom makes those who have it appear foolish in the eyes of the world. Listen to this. Believers have received this divine wisdom and thus in the world appear to be fools. So, so many times as a pastor I hear this idea. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm afraid I don't have all the right words. I don't, I'm afraid I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of what my neighbors will think. I'm afraid of what my coworkers will think. That's the point. God has chosen to make people in this room who are wise and smart, people in this room that have their masters and their PhDs, people who have led successful companies and performed open-heart surgery. He's chosen to make you look foolish to the world. So the world might see the beauty and the wonder of the wisdom of God. Think about it for a second. Like the Sermon on the Mount, like just, just following Jesus 101 appears foolish to the world around us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's moronic to the world, right? The world says, no, you crush your enemy. You never show weakness. You suppress them so they will never attack you. 
The wisdom of God says we love our enemy and we pray for those who persecute them. We pursue them and we pursue them and we care for them. Releasing our grasp on the things of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. We release our grasp on the things of this world, of power and control, money. Right? That doesn't mean we quit our job. Right? We use all this talent and this ability, this worldly wisdom to make boatloads of cash. And then we release it to the work of the gospel to feed those who are starving, to care for the sick, to, to, to advance the mission of God in our day. This is, appears foolish to the world around us. What? You could have retired by 40. What are you doing, you idiot? You're giving it all away. So that they might see the wisdom of God, we must become fools. And this goes against everything within us. It goes against everything within Paul. Even Paul wants to look smart in front of all the smart people. He walks into the Aragopagus and he says, these are the smartest people in the world. I got to look good. We're no, we're no different. I already alluded to it earlier on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. We're constantly posting things that make us look better than we actually are we're constantly, we're doing this all of the time. Friends, we must be willing to look foolish. And Paul realizes this on his journey. He tried to show off. He tried to show this wisdom and this power, this smarts, and it fell flat. Friends, I promise you, I promise you, all of your work to look impressive has no effect on the gospel. All of your work to look better than you are has no effect on the gospel. It's useless in transforming people's lives. So let me ask you this. Who are you trying to impress? Like, what's their name? I know you got somebody in your life that you just do not want them to see you fail. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's employees, coworkers. Like, they must see me as strong. They must see me as smart. They must see me as sharp. Maybe it's your family members. Maybe it's your friends. They need to see me as cool and hip. They need to see that I have it all together. They got to see that I'm just an awesome mom. They can't know that I'm pulling my hair out over here. Can't know it. They can't see it. People need to know I have it all together, even though you don't. You got to know I'm perfect, even though you're not. Friends, that is impeding the gospel in your life. God wants to use your brokenness and your weakness, your foolishness, to illuminate his power and the wonder of his wisdom to those around you. And so let us be a people who release our grasp on the desires of our heart and the desires of this world. Let's be a people who say, man, I want to become foolish so that the world might know the wisdom of God and the power of the cross. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we just confess that it is true. We don't want people in our lives to think less of us. We dress ourselves up. We put our money into our self-marketing. Clothes we wear. Car we drive. We study and we work so that we might appear to be smart, to be cultured. 
put lipstick all over our lives. We want to be seen as perfect parents. We want to be seen as perfect employees, bosses, perfect family members. Even we want to be seen as perfect followers of Jesus. It's all a joke. But I pray that right here at Flourishing Grace, that this would not be true of us. That we would just declare to the world, we're a wreck, we're a mess. We frustrate each other. We say dumb things. We make mistakes. But in all of that, place all of our hope and all of our love and desire and longing into Christ crucified. Would that be true of us? Would you bring us to that place where we are on our knees before the cross of Christ? We cling to it with all of our might. Praising your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.